The first reading today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel, which is written in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For some reason, I want to start with a kind of weather story. In 1952, there was an episode which we call smog, particularly in central London. My wife, Anita, was a student in her college at the Albert Hall and tells me about it. 
The problem was caused by the fact that in those days houses were heated, not by central heating, but by having coal fires, which burnt all day and often all night. And if you looked outside at a terrace of houses, you would see smoke billowing out from all the houses. The result was that when it was mixed with the natural fog, it created a dense, impenetrable fog. And if you stood uh, on a pavement, you couldn't see your own outstretched hand, let alone the other side of the street. It was, easy, it was hard not to get lost. And even when undertaking familiar trips, uh, Nita uh, and her friends found, find themselves unable to find the Albert Hall. The smog permeated everything, the underground which stopped running, cinemas and theatres, schools and hospitals. And as you breathed in the smog, it affected your lungs and if you were susceptible to bronchitis or were elderly and frail, uh, breathing became more and more difficult and over 4,000 people died. The government uh, had to act and concluded that coal as a fuel must be stopped. The remedy was drastic, expensive, but in the end, effective. It was in the Clean Air Act, banning the use of ordinary house coal. Hold on to that illustration, which I shall return to later. The cleansing of the temple is an important event in the Gospels. It's mentioned one of those rare incidents recorded in all four Gospels, but partly because it's so unexpected, an outburst of activity, the overturning of the tables, the coins flying everywhere, a whip being made and presumably used in some way, the expulsion of men and animals from the temple, and all that by Jesus, who, one of whose titles is Prince of Peace. John places it at the start of his gospel, immediately following the first miracle uh, which of uh, changing the, wa the water into wine, uh, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, with its transforming message that Jesus was bringing in a new era where cleansing and purification would no longer be through the purification rites of the Old Testament, washing and sacrifice, but through his death on the cross. Our reading takes us to an important period in the Jewish year, the Passover marking the deliverance by God of his people from the darkness and despair of their slavery in Egypt. And like many others, Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem and in the temple. To understand this rather strange event, we need to consider what the temple meant for the people of Israel. During their wanderings in the desert, they had had with them a kind of portable temple, the tabernacle. But when they settled, uh, they built Solomon's temple, and it became the heart of the community. And uh, it gave it its character and identity. Uh, the temple carried a very powerful message stressing the presence of God living amongst his people and his utter holiness.
the, tem- the temple became the beating heart of the, temp- of the people of God. A bit like St. Paul's during the Blitz, when all around it was being destroyed, but the great cathedral dominating the city of London stood starkly alone amongst the flames and the ruins, intact and seemingly protected by divine fiat from the destructive power of Nazi Germany. The people took courage from the cathedral's survival. And the temple in Jerusalem was the heart not only of their religious life, but of political and civil life too. The temple had to be dynamic. If God was present in the temple, it must fundamentally affect the lives of all who are members of his people. All this Jesus had in mind when he with the disciples went up to the temple that day. It was, he said, my father's house. But as he enters the temple precincts, what he sees first are those selling animals and birds, and then those who were exchanging money from ordinary currency uh, to um, the the temple currency. The The ordinary currency was a deeply anathema to the Jews because of the sign of the emperor's, the emperor's um, the sign of the emperor on the coins, and the claim to the emperor's divinity. Both these activities, of course, the need for birds and animals and appropriate money, were necessary to the business of the temple. Uh, But the objection was that this was taking place inside the temple itself instead of away on secular grounds. It was then a desecration of all that the temple stood for, it being the house of God and the place of holiness, separated from the busy day-to-day world around. The temple had become corrupt and was under judgment, and the message it was intended to convey would be threatened or lost. If the miracle of the wedding at Cana was a sign, the cleansing of the temple was certainly another sign. Yet surely Jesus' action was more than the offence of secularising the building. Just as in the previous miracle, Jesus is giving the message that after his coming, Purification was to be found not in the symbolic washing of hands and body, but in Christ. It was another now transforming sign that the old temple was to be destroyed and to be replaced by Jesus himself. He didn't quite put it in these words, but he might have said, I am the new temple. When asked what sign he could show to demonstrate his authority, He didn't respond directly, but made the extraordinary claim, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They laughed at him and no doubt thought him a fool. But John adds, the temple he'd spoken of was his body. It was a statement which made no sense at the time, but every sense when we are able to look back on the resurrection The body, despised and broken and dead, was raised after three days in victory and glory. So Jesus has come and has sent us his spirit that we might find him wherever we are, 
and meet God in him and make him the object of our worship and prayer. His law is replaced by the new law, the law of love exemplified by Jesus. The old temple was magnificent, but even that was temporal and would be raised to the ground and never rebuilt. But the new temple of Christ's body is eternal, at the heart not only of Jerusalem, but of the entire world, not only for the duration of the kingdom of Israel, but transcending time altogether. Jesus is now the beating heart of our lives and of our church, or it ought to be. He is the one we serve, the object of our worship, the one to whom we pray. But there's another challenge, and that is the integrity of the temple. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and indeed the people of Jerusalem, were proud of their temple. People came from all over the world to see it and admire it. But it drifted into part of the background, into something of the, of the essence of its meaning, losing something of the essence of its meaning, part of the scenery of their daily life, a place to visit when there were, where there were rituals to perform, a culture to be observed. It was that which aroused Jesus' ang- righteous anger. It meant that God himself had been moved from the central position in their lives, his holiness now taken for granted, his presence overlooked, his power minimized. It had lost its dynamic until he came in judgment. And the question which faces us personally and challenges our church is whether today we too may grow to treat our religious observance as just part of a background, whether whether other things take over our lives, some interest, some passion, some person, something which occupies the center of our lives, displacing the real temple, Jesus. Our days and nights can be cluttered with anxieties and concerns, thoughts and activities which leave little time for the kingdom of the Spirit and need purging. Like the smog in my illustration, pervading all life, the danger is of the drag of secularization. The conduct and attitudes of those around us whose lives are full of almost anything except the spiritual life, the divine. We can find ourselves being caught caught up and pulled along uh, by the unnoticed but uh, immensely strong tide of the secular, losing the vision we were once gripped by, losing our sense of direction, deprived of the fresh air and the vital air, air of the spirit. Like the temple, our churches and cathedrals, many of the magnificent and worthy places to find God and respond to him, are there to uplift our worship, to point us to God and challenge our obedience. But too often we can walk past them without noticing and enter them merely as entering places interesting for history or beauty or architecture. That, of course, is how tour companies treat them and their clients. But it's much more than a question of buildings, rather a question of our own lives and the life of the church. There is no better time of year than Lent to ask ourselves if Jesus remains real and at the centre of our lives. How real and how up-to-date and how powerful is our vision of Christ 
at the centre of our lives. How true is our worship and prayer, how devoted our service, how vital our sense of the numinous. We may need drastic action uh, as they did in the time of the smog if we are to get our priorities right and it may be hard and costly. We may need a spiritual version of the Clean Air Act so that we can see where we're going and keep our destination at the forefront of our minds. At the heart of our lives must be our temple, Christ. It is that relationship that alone can keep us alive and healthy, able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen.